I will give you a heads up. Um, as you look at your outline, you will see that we have finished up 1 Corinthians. And you will see that I have laid out there Philemon. I will warn you ahead of time, we will finish this book today. <laughs> Just so as you know, uh, next Sunday I will not be here. I will be out of town with my wife and Hank and Donna Smith. And we have a guest speaker who will fill the pulpit. And uh, the schedule will be the same. Uh, so uh, uh, then once I get back from uh, the Carolinas, I will uh, begin Second Corinthians. And uh, so uh, you have been warned. Uh, if you're wondering about it, I'd grab a hold of the side of your chair and hang on. Um, we will cover some ground today. All right? We'll have a word of prayer. Then we will read this entire book in one setting. Father, help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see, souls that are receptive to your word and the power of this little letter. Father, I just pray that my brothers and sisters will rejoice at what is said here, understand the power that is said here, and understand the principle which is given unto us and in light of a society in which we live. And yet, Father, as I read this letter, I know it is only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that this is even possible. Father, may they hear you. And uh, Father, may they see you and not uh, a feeble messenger. To your glory and praise. Amen. The letter to Philemon, if you can't find it, it's because it's tucked between Titus and Hebrews. And in my book, it's a page. Okay, and sometimes we, whoops, you know, I kind of rolled right out of Titus into Hebrews. What is this? So here we go. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved brother, fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back 
to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wished to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by the compulsion of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, having confidence in your obedience. I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare for me a lodging for I hope that through your prayers, I will be given to you. Epaphras, our fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Atyricus, Demas, Luke, and my fellow workers. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, with your spirit. This is an amazing letter. Uh, it's very small, but it's an amazing letter. Uh, and it is Especially bright, shining in our society today, um, which to say is selfish would be the understatement of humanity. Um, and not only that, um, when you think about this underlying theme that is in here, and the word is not even mentioned in this text, it is the implication of forgiveness. In our society today, forgiveness is classified as a weakness. And uh, I, I think that what you will find, um, we'll get into it. Let me give you a little background. <clears throat> Slaves at the writing of the New Testament were considered tools. Uh, a slave had no rights at all. Uh, and, and I'm talking about no rights. They were not allowed to marry. They were not to be recognized as married. They could be bought, sold, or destroyed at the master's discretion. All right. And during the writing of this, during the time of the Roman Empire, uh, they feel like that probably close to 80% of the population was slaves. But if you look at the church... Who were they reaching? Slaves. But there was a common thing that happened among slaves, given in some circumstances, if they had the opportunity to escape and to flee, uh, some would take it. And there was a thriving business had grown for um, basically what I would call a bounty hunter 
for runaway slaves, and they made uh, very lucrative livings off of rounding up these wayward slaves. Um, and if a slave ran away, um, it was completely up to the owner's prerogative what the punishment could be. Um, it could be castration. It could be um, the mutilation of limbs so they would absolutely be useless to anyone ever again and they would end up being beggars. Or they could be killed uh, without... You didn't even have to have a trial. Okay, It would be no different than you having a tool that you felt was useless and you threw the tool away or destroyed the tool. That was Roman law. Right. What had happened is the Apostle Paul had been arrested. He had been shipped to Rome. They were trying to crucify him in Jerusalem. Um, they had been shipped to Rome. He claimed to be a Roman citizen, so you can't crucify me. And I have the right to have a hearing before Caesar. And they had shipped him to Rome. Probably what happened, Onesimus had fled Philemon, which would have been in the city of Colossae. And figured that if I get into the Roman society, the city of Rome, uh, I can just blend in with the masses. And <laughs> that's funny because God takes what was intended for evil and he uses it for good. And guess who Onesimus runs into? Paul. Bet you guess what Paul told him. All right. Do you understand who was instructive in getting the church started in Colossae. Epaphroditus, you know where he learned it from, Paul. So all of a sudden, there would have been this, lights come on, you're from Colossae, Onesimus, I know a guy from Colossae, his name is Philemon. Anyway, in the course of this interchange, Onesimus becomes a believer. If you look at this letter, the first three verses are basically an introduction. Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul is the only New Testament writer who refers to Jesus Christ as Christ Jesus. All right, here's the reason that I believe. You can't, don't take this and begin a new denomination on it. But when you look at the other New Testament writers, when they met Jesus, he was Jesus first and then the Christ. When Paul met Jesus, it was first the Christ, Jesus. And he is the only author in the New Testament who refers to him in that method. Um, you see that Timothy is with him. You also see that there is a, a, a believing woman with him and another co-soldier who to the church house is where at? Philemon's house. The saints of Colossae were meeting in Philemon's house. Okay? And then you go from, you go from verse 4 to 25 and you basically see what is going on here. And one of the things that I really was impressed with when I first began reading this letter a few months ago is the concern here is not for the church house. The concern here is not for Philemon. The concern here is not for Onesimus. It is not even for Paul. The concern on what is being stated in this text is for the Lord. 
You've got to understand that. Because the basis of this text is forgiveness. And the forgiveness and interaction between the saints of God is for whose glory and whose purpose? For the Lord. Right? We just came out of a eight-year study on your personal holiness in the book of 1 Corinthians. And the Corinthian church was a mess. I mean, there was being an understatement. And yet through this whole thing, there's an underlying forgiveness. Remember the guy who had his father's wife and he wanted him restored. What's that based on? Listen, if you take this book, Genesis to Revelations, what's it based on? Forgiveness. We call it the ministry of reconciliation. What is that? God reconciling fallen man to himself. What does that imply? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Most people believe they get saved so they can go to heaven. No, you get saved to experience forgiveness. And I bet you dollars to donuts, everybody in here has had trouble with forgiveness once or twice. There is a concern for the people. And we are to forgive. I mean, that's Romans 3, 10 through 16. We are to forgive. Why? Because we are forgiven. We are forgiven. And there's a concern for people. But look at the second half here. You say, toward all the saints. I hear of your love and your faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus. And what else? And toward all the saints. Why? There has to be forgiveness in the body of Christ. Why? Because the body of Christ exists based on forgiveness. We're non-existent entity if there is no forgiveness. He says here that it is on this love. I hear of your love. It's agape. Love is love of the will. It's a love of choice. It's a love of self-sacrifice. It is a love that is based on um, humility. Listen, the only time you don't forgive is when you ain't humble. Did you know that? It is impossible for someone who is not humble to forgive. Why? Because if you don't forgive, then your forgiveness that comes from Christ means nothing to you. And your standard of righteousness is now higher than God's. And when I run into those people, I smile at them, I tell them I love them, and I think that they should hang on the cross to forgive sin. Because that's what Christ did for His forgiveness. Okay? When I think of this love, agape, I think of fruit of the spirits. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. It is love. It shows the genuineness of faith because this love is a love of the will. I desire this. I am overwhelmed by this. It is a, 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 a desire of choice. It is yes, 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 self-sacrificing love. You see it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. You see it in 1 John three fourteen. Okay? Listen. If you're really honest with yourself, 
You do not have to be a theologian. You do not have to be a Greek scholar. You do not have to be fluent in Hebrew. But you will, with a cursory reading of Scripture, to understand that a Christian unwillingness to forgive is unthinkable. And yet, I bet you there are some in this room who struggle with it. Unforgiveness in a Christian is rebellion. It is blatant, open act of disobedience to God. We are to forgive others as God has forgiven us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 and Colossians 3.13. Failure to do this will bring at least, (laughs) at least four unpleasant results. All right? One, unforgiveness keeps the pain alive. Unforgiveness keeps the pain alive. Unforgiveness keeps that sore open. All right? Unforgiveness makes it impossible for the wound to heal. It feeds anger, resentment, and will rob you of the joy of living. Second, unforgiveness produces bitterness. Bitterness. And the... The bitterness will often far out exceed the offense that was committed. Bitterness is not just a sin. Um, I was reading Linsky. Bitterness is an infection. Because if you've ever been around someone who's bitter, they have this wonderful joy of sharing it. They do. You know who you're, I'm talking about. We've all run into people who are bitter. And there is no doubt in your mind, and you spend very little time with them, what happens? You become bitter that they're still around. No. <laughs> but you do. Bitterness is, is... When I read Linsky says it's an infection, I thought, you know what? He's right. It is an infection. And it comes from unforgiveness. Um, The writer of Hebrews says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble, that many would be defiled. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. Okay, If you know bitter people, in case you haven't run into one yet, a bitter person's speech is cutting, it will be sarcastic, and may even be slanderous. And they will distort... The whole outlook on life. Okay? Can produce violent emotions, intolerance, and will breed thoughts of revenge. Okay? Um, I, I see this the root of bitterness and unforgiveness 
um, produce the weeds of divorce and, and unforgiveness, on the other hand, will replace it with love, joy, peace, and other fruits of the Spirit. And you see it all the time. That it's unforgiveness. Third thing. Unforgiveness gives Satan an open door. Okay, Paul warns the uh, Ephesian believers in chapter 4, 26 and 27, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. To the Corinthians, Whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven... If I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant to his schemes. Okay, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. All right, and the fourth thing, unforgiveness will hinder our fellowship with God. Uh, our Lord warns us, Quote, if you forgive men of their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. All right, that's Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Okay, so what I'm trying to get at with just those four is forgiveness is important. Okay, and, and I believe that in our society today, in the church society today, I believe that we neglect this one. I really do. How important is it? Let me give you a little list here that I, I dug up from a Forgive and Love Again is the name of the book. One, <clears throat> to forgive is to turn a key that opens a cell door and let the prisoner walk free. Okay, two, to forgive is to write in large letters across a debt, nothing owed. Three, to forgive is to pound the gavel in a courtroom and declare not guilty. Four, to forgive is to shoot an arrow so high and so far that it can never be found again. Six, to forgive is to bundle up all the garbage and trash and dispose of it, leaving the house clean and fresh. Seven. To forgive is to loose the moorings of a ship and release it to the open sea. Eight. To forgive is to grant a full pardon of a condemned criminal. To forgive. Nine. Is to forgive is to relax a stranglehold on a wrestling opponent. Ten. Is to forgive is to relax. Or wait. To forgive is to sandblast the wall of graffiti, leaving it looking like new. And lastly, to forgive is to smash a clay pot into a thousand pieces so that it can never be pieced together again. Pretty interesting, isn't it? You know what's really interesting about it? Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says what? The love of God has been poured into your hearts by the person of the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt by the Spirit of the living God who is the person of Jesus Christ, who is the abundance of God Himself. And you have to ask yourself a simple question. What did God forgive you of? 
Because I will tell you, it is difficult. It is difficult. If you've ever, in my line of work, um, there's a lot of people saying a lot of things and doing a lot of things because they love me so much. <laughs> and um, and for, and you think about it. How many times have you heard the word, I'm sorry? How many times have you heard the word, I'm sorry, to the same offense? To the point you what? I, you know the words. You'll always smile and say, I forgive you. You'll just do it again. Well, that just doesn't sound like shooting an arrow so it could never be found again. Just doesn't sound like it. Listen, if you're going to move into ministry, and that's what you're going to do if you stick around this church for 2 Corinthians, you'd better be dealing with this right up front, bud. This is, this is in your face, and yet this is the whole premise that you got saved. I broke this down into three points. Character of forgiveness, the action of forgiveness, the motivation of forgiveness. Verses 4 through 7, the character of, uh, of forgiveness is, 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 is real straightforward if you think about it. Um, first part of verse 6 says, I pray for the fellowship of your faith. Why? There's a concern for fellowship. The word is koinonia, and koinonia is a little more than just hanging out together. It's an intimate relationship. It has to be, um, it, it's more than enjoying somebody's company. It is being a part of people's lives. See, real faith and love, what? Will result in a concern for the fellowship. You know, I watch churches today and they're trying to make fellowship. You know, we're going to have a softball team or we're going to have a volleyball team or we're going to have a barbecue or we're going to have some kind of whatever. We haven't run out of thought. The, the, the new buzzword in the pastor is creativity. Um, whatever. But there, it's way more than that. And you don't create this. You should have an overwhelming faith and love that would have automatic concern for the fellowship. It shouldn't be something that you go train for. You know, I'm going to learn to fellowship and I'm taking a class. You got serious problems. Serious problems. Listen, this concern for this fellowship was Philemon, you need to forgive Onesimus. Why? What will the testimony be in the church in Colossae? You have a runaway slave... That's a tool. Very possibly this slave stole some money from you. And now the slave is saved. It's sort of like the text that was read this morning out of the book of Acts. The disciples were a little bit leery about the Apostle Paul. Oh, he, he arrested Uncle Bob. He stoned Stephen. You know, I yeah, fellowship with him, really? And here you have Philemon needing to more than enjoy Onesimus' company. That'd be like somebody stole something from you, comes back as a believer, and now you want to hang out with them. That's what Paul's saying. I mean, basically, 
By Roman law, Onesimus is a belonging to Philemon. It is no different than a pair of boots. You know what? This would be powerful in a church. I mean, it would say a lot through a community. I mean, the community of believers and the community of the unbelievers. They're all going to sit there and go, what? But there would also be a concern for knowledge. Okay, the character of forgiveness, there's a concern for the fellowship, but there's also a concern for knowledge. And he makes a statement there. Do you, in the second part of verse 6, through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you. Okay? See, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Ephesians 1.3. Okay? In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we find out that we literally have a new nature. Okay? Do you know what I'm getting at here? That's knowledge. I am learning this. Why? This is an outside source that has brought information in it. But the word here is epinosis. Okay, and it's more than sitting down and memorizing a book. It says, I have taken in this information, and now through experience, this knowledge is wisdom and accent in my life that has changed to an action based on the knowledge I received and what I have now experienced. Listen, you cannot read about forgiveness and understand it. Forgiveness must be experienced. I guarantee you, you look at the body of Christ today, many people will say, I have been forgiven of my sins, and yet their actions are non-forgiving. And I'm telling you right now, they have never experienced forgiveness. How can you? How can you? It's impossible. See, until, see, for Philemon, until he forgave, there's no experience to forgiveness. And the truth of the matter is, until you forgive, you have knowledge that you have drawn upon. Jesus has forgiven me of my sins. He hung on a cross, paid my penalty, and all the rest of it. My debt is paid in full. And we all sit there and go, oh, amen. Okay? But you know what? Majority of Christians have never experienced what that forgiveness really is. Why? Because somebody has offended you and you refuse to forgive. So how in the world can you know Christ's forgiveness? It's like skiing. Okay? You can read a book about skiing. That does not make you a skier. The only way you can know skiing is to experience it. Experience it. There is a huge difference between reading about skiing and skiing. Okay? Let me tell you something. There's a big difference between reading about forgiveness and forgiving. Because you know what? To forgive means it as far as the east is from the west. How are you doing with that? 
Man, some of you are smiling, some of you are going, <laughs> I thought he was going to teach on prayer. <laughs> because it's as if it never happened. I move on from it. It's never kept an account. See what the character of forgiveness is? Another thing there you see at the end of verse 6 is a concern for the glory of Christ. Okay? For whose sake? Now, you know what's amazing about this text? The word forgiveness doesn't even show up in the text. It ain't in there. But you know what? You can't read that and tell me this ain't dealing with forgiveness. It is unto Christ. The goal of every Christian, what? It's to the glory of Christ. It doesn't matter what it is. Remember what 1 Corinthians 10.31 says? Whether you eat, whether you drink, and whatever you do, do all for the glory of Christ. I bet you, whatever you do would actually include forgiveness. Forgiveness. I was reading a poem no, I don't read poetry. I just found it in a book. Okay. Do I look like I read poetry? <laughs> no. Say it. You can say it. It doesn't bother me. Okay. It's called The Toys. Um, and, and I'll just read you the poem. <clears throat> My little son, who looked from thoughtful eyes and moved and spoke in quite grown-up wise, having my law... The seventh time disobeyed, I struck him and dismissed with harsh words and unkissed. His mother, who was patient, being dead, then fearing lest his grief would hinder sleep, I visited his bed. I found him slumbering deep with darkened eyelids, their lashes, lashes yet from his late sobbing wet, and I, with a moan, kissing away his tears, left others of my own. For on a table drawn beside his head, I had put within his reach a box of tokens and red-veined stones, a piece of glass obeyed by the bench, and six and seven shells, a bottle of blue shells, and two French copper coins ranged there in careful art to comfort his sad heart. So when that night I prayed to God, I wept and said, I, ah, when at last we lie with tranquil breath, not vexing thee in death, and thou rememberest of what toys we made our joys. How weakly understood thy great commanded good, then fatherly not less than I whom thou hast molded from clay. Thou leaveth thy wrath and say, I forgave their childishness. Got it? How childish have we been? How easy are we to forgive? Why? It is to whose glory? How can I say that I have been forgiven when I can no longer forgive? And you know what? 
How many in this room have kids, or how many of you have been kids, have disobeyed your parents more than once on the same issue? <laughs> JJ, you got witnesses everywhere, dude. You're in trouble. <laughs> I ain't getting out of nothing. See, I can say, well, I only did mine once. My mom's way over on the other side of Mississippi. <laughs> but did you start trying to get at when I look at forgiveness, do I look at it as under the glory of Christ? I want God to be glorified in the fact that I can forgive as He has forgiven me. Nailed to the cross. Debt is paid. See ya. That's tough. And then in verse 7, there's also to be a concern for blessing. You read the text there. <clears throat> for I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been what? Refreshed. Remember that? There are those in our lives that are refreshing to be around. Through what you will do, Philemon, will be refreshing. For what you will do, you will be a blessing. Do you understand that your action of forgiveness is a blessing? And I'm talking it goes way beyond the fact that you have forgiven someone who has offended you. I'm talking about what does it do in the body of Christ? Which brings me to verses 8 through 18, the actions of forgiveness. You see it right there, therefore. Okay, um, this is the basis of what he's writing the book for. Um, in this book, the word doesn't appear. There is not a doctrinal explanation. There's not a theological understanding of what is forgiveness. It's not in there. You're not going to find it. Paul does not appeal to the law. He doesn't appeal to principle. He doesn't appeal to theology of Golgotha. He just slays it out. See, verse 9, he says, Yet for love's sakes I appeal to you, since I, such a person as Paul the aged, now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. See, Paul knew Philemon. He knew Philemon well. He knew that Philemon was godly. He knew there was a spiritual maturity in this man. And his heart was right before God. Paul understood that. I do not need to explain to you the doctrine of forgiveness. But let me give you eight foundational points for the doctrine of forgiveness. I will read them quickly. You can go look the text up yourself. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it says, Thou shalt not murder. But if you go to Matthew's gospel, chapter 5, 21 to 22, he goes through there and he says that if you have ever been angry, you have murdered. Okay? So basically what he does, he forbids hating <laughs> anybody. He forbids vengeance. He forbids anger. And because all of them are based on a lack of forgiveness. Okay. How do you deal with this attitude? How do you deal with it? Those who need forgiveness were created by who? God. So how can you not forgive You were not in need of forgiveness at some point. And you were created by 
the same Creator. See, believers have the life of God dwelling them. And when I look at people who have offended me, who have hurt me, who have criticized, whatever it is they do, I can see people that were created in God's image. And they are in need of forgiveness. Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine: love your neighbor how? As yourself. And I believe that most of us are very tolerant with ourselves, are we not? Somehow I thought so. We find ourselves worthy of forgiveness at times, don't we? Then we wonder why people won't forgive us. See, selfish is not to extend... um, If selfishness is extended, then forgiveness is crushed. Because the reason you won't forgive is why? Well, you don't understand what they did to me. They crucify you yet? Because if they do, you can thank them. Forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they do. And absent from the body. Hmm. Second thing. Um, I think what happens is we miss this. All sin is innately against who? God. So when someone sins against you, who are they truly sinning against? God. And Psalm 51, 4, David says, he goes before God, he has committed murder and adultery. And his plea is against you, holy God, only. I have sinned. Now, Uriah might argue with it, but... But David understood that his sin was against holy God. Whatever offense is against men, the greater offense is to God. God has forgiven. And we can't. Are we more deserving? I don't think so. See, believers who fail to forgive, we'll talk about... If you remember the wicked slave in Matthew 18, you know, he, he couldn't pay his master back. Okay, and the master wrote it off. And then he went and found someone who owed him money and put him in prison for not paying him back. Okay, now, you know what's amazing about that text? It is a lack of unforgiveness, and that is actually the text that is dealing with church discipline. You set him outside the church. Who? In its context. Those who do not forgive. Wow. Hmm. Just got weird, didn't it? Third thing. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. Failing to forgive. Guess what? The Father will not forgive you. You have hindered fellowship with God. And that was what reconciliation was. Fourth thing, unforgiving in Matthew 18.31 is church discipline. It hinders our relationship to God. It hinders also our relationship to other Christians. Fifth thing, unforgiving is revenge. Did you know that? 
It's the same coin. All right? When you have that heart, you are now taking the authority of God. Do you hear what I said? You are taking the authority of God. Romans 12, 14 and 19 says what? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Is God unjust? If you do not forgive, then you are revengeful. If you are revengeful, then you believe that your standard is higher than God's. Six things. Unforgiving uh, makes you unfit to worship. Okay? Sermon on the Mount. When you bring something to the altar, what? Make sure that nobody has an offense against you. Matthew chapter, seventh thing, Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45, you are to love your enemies and you are to pray for those who persecute you, who offense, who have an offense against you. Why? Because it will strengthen us. See, when you refuse to forgive, you are only disobedient to he who forgave you. Okay? That becomes a temptation which will be equal to sin. All right? What is our response? What is our response when someone sins against you? Eighth thing, forgiveness should be given even if it is not sought. Did you get that? Forgiveness is to be given even if it is not sought. Jesus was on the cross and the words were, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Guess what? They didn't want his forgiveness. But he gave it anyway. You know what? The restoration will not come until it is sought. I agree. But you know what? That's not our call. Don't hold a grudge. From the heart, be free from the bitterness, love and mercy. Back to our text, verse 8. Therefore... Okay, it, it is a bond of love that brings this. I have confidence, enough confidence in Christ that you will do what is proper. Verse 9, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. I am the aged, now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. The aged is, he's probably in his 60s here. And I'm pretty sure he didn't age well. You get stoned and left for dead and a few other odds and ends, beaten with rods, shipwrecked, and a few other things. Okay? Three actions that we've got to take of forgiveness. First is receive this person. Okay, if you're going to forgive, you're going to receive. Now, what am I, what are you getting? I appeal to you, my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten and imprisonment. Okay, step one in the process of forgiveness. Okay, opening your eyes to taking that person who offended you. Open it up. You're going to open your life to him? Or are you going to say, yep, I forgive you. You just stay over there. Okay, he received him. Why? How did he get the ladder? Onesimus delivers it. Onesimus is a slave who can be killed for running from his master. Here, 
Now, what would have been, I mean, you have got to be, this has got to be insane. I mean, you're standing there, a runaway slave who has probably stolen from your master, knowing that you can die at any minute, knowing what Paul wrote in this letter. <laughs> I like the idea myself. <laughs> Before you beat me, master, would you read this? <laughs> it's sort of like Paul said, you can't crucify me. I'm a Roman citizen child in faith he had been gotten in imprisonment and the child seeks to be restored that is to receive him back receive the slave back he is repentant he has to be repentant if he's not repentant why is he standing there which is restoration child in the faith that makes him on the same plane as Timothy Titus Philemon He is transformed. Look what it says here. It's really kind of cool. Verse 11. He was formerly useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. That's a cool word. You know why it's so cool? You know what Onesimus means? Useful or benefit. Cool. He used to be, he was useless, but now he is useful. Okay, because why? He is in sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Colossians three twenty two. Okay, but he's faithful. Verse seven, because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed. Much comfort. Much comfort. L- listen, Paul is kind of in an awkward position. He has an overwhelming feelings and love for both Onesimus and Philemon. Okay, now I don't know about you. I've been in that place a couple times where two saints were mad at each other. And here you were having great compassion for both of them and thinking, huh, this is bugger. Because one doesn't want you to talk to the other one, doesn't want you to talk to the other one. But you restore them. Verses 15 and 16. For perhaps he was, for this reason, he was separated from you for a while. Why? Perhaps him running away and stealing from you was so that your eyes would be open to the gospel of Jesus Christ or his eyes would be open to the gospel of Jesus Christ and he would come to salvation through this horrific thing. But now he says here, he's no longer a slave. He is more. He's a beloved brother, especially to be. But now more to you, both in the flesh and to the Lord. Why? Because now you have him back, what? Forever. See, God uses evil to produce good. Remember Joseph? What you had planned for evil, God planned for good. He left as a fugitive slave. Now he's a beloved brother that you will spend eternity with. Enjoy in this flesh and in the Lord. You can enjoy this man's presence now because he is in the Lord and you can enjoy being around him. He was refreshing to me. He will be refreshing to you. It gives a whole new meaning to he is your servant. But then verses 17 and 18, this is why I believe there was some thieving going on. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. Wow, that would be tough, wouldn't it? 
There you are, your slave, runaway slave who stole from you, hands you this letter, and he says, I want you to receive this runaway slave who stole from you as if it was me. If he wronged you in any way or owes you anything, what does he say? Charge it to my account. Charge it to my account. There may be a debt to replace. He may have taken something. And yet Paul is willing to pay Onesimus' debt, no matter what it is. Why? Because I want the relationship restored between the two. That's forgiveness, brothers and sisters. You see that? Motives for forgiveness. Verses 19 to 25. I have a quote from a guy named Sir Thomas More. He was a believer in Jesus Christ. Henry VIII concluded that he had a bunch of property that he would like to have. And so they sentenced Sir Thomas. He got his judges to sentence Sir Thomas More to death. Okay. At his hearing for his execution, you have the judges standing there in front of him. This is his statement, Sir Thomas More. As blessed apostle St. Paul consented to the death of St. Stephen and kept their cloaks that stoned him to death, and yet be they now both twain holy saints in heaven and shall continue there friends forever. So, I verily trust and shall therefore rightly, heartily pray that though your lordships have now here in earth been judges to my condemnation, we may yet hereafter in heaven merrily all meet together to our everlasting salvation. (laughs) Go ahead, condemn me. (laughs) that'd be a little tough you sign the paper (laughs) I sign the paper in Acts chapter 7 verse 60 Stephen said this do not hold this against these whoa Jesus, Luke 23, 34, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Listen, read verse 19. I'm writing this with my own hands. Why? I'm verifying what I'm writing here. I will repay it. You know what he's saying? There's a debt out here. Oh, by the way, look what he says next. Not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. You know what that means? There's a debt here that can't be paid. It's unpayable. And he says, by the way, I'm writing this in my own hand. If you believe that Onesimus owes you this, I'll write it in my own hand, I'll pay it. Do you know how much you owe me, Philemon? What a stinker. I'll pay it. You owe, a, may be owed by Onesimus 
a material debt. But Philemon, you owe me a spiritual debt. Onesimus may owe you a temporal debt. But to me, you owe an eternal debt. Do you think about that? Listen, it applies to you and I today. If you're really honest with yourselves, you are indebted to a whole bunch of people. And some of you owe debts that are insurmountable that you could ever repay them. There may be people in this congregation who were the vehicles and the tools that God opened your eyes to the salvation of Jesus Christ. How do you repay that? Think about the people who have taught you. How do you repay that? They have only poured eternal wisdom into your soul. You would pay that how? People that you have ministered with, ministered to. How do you repay that? Think about it. If someone offends us, incurs a debt to us, how does it compare to what we owe others? How can I not forgive? So many helped us spiritually in ways we could never repay it, leading to Christ, teaching, encouraging, supply. Listen, you guys all collectively supply my earthly needs. How do I repay that? People holding you accountable, family, saints, brothers, sisters, relatives. How do you repay that? Verse 20. Yes, brother, let me benefit. That's the same word Onesimus, by the way. Let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Being a blessing. Being a blessing. Me and my are emphatic. And Philemon uh, has been a blessing to many people. That's what he's saying. I mean, he's got the churches meeting in his house. Okay. Like I said, the verb there, benefit, is the word we get Onesimus from. Or vice versa. And by the, the, the work of one, Philemon would benefit Paul and the Lord. And he'd make my joy complete, as he told the Philippians. Just do this. Refresh my heart in Christ, Philemon. Be a benefit. You know, Paul is looking at two men that he dearly loves that are at odds with each other. And he wants to see it reconciled. Why? Look at what it does for the church. Verse 21, having this confidence in your what? Obedience. See, Paul was confident. He already said that in verses 4 and 7. Even more, I don't want you to be grudging about this. Your motivations for forgiveness. They shouldn't be grudging what Paul's told me. You should open your arms. Not because of the law. Not because God commanded it. But because of love. But I watch and I, and I read this and it's funny because I understand that what Philemon deals with is the same thing that you and I deal with. How do I forgive? Listen, think about it. When that slave run off, odds are what was he going to have to do? Buy a replacement. Whatever his job was, now that job ain't being done. So he had 
whatever he stole from him and then the burden of having to invest in another. Look what he says. <laughs> Verse 22. At the same time, what? Prepare for me lodging. <laughs> See, now do you know where Paul's at? He's in a Roman jail. This is his first imprisonment. They're keeping him in house arrest. Uh, and he's getting ready to go to court. He's waiting his time in court. But he's pretty convinced that the charges against him ain't going to stand up. And I'm going to get out. Oh, by the way, Philemon. I'll be down. As soon as I get released, I'm coming over to Colossae. All right? So I'm going to find out what your response to Onesimus is. That's accountability. That's accountability. I'm coming down. Why? He wants the accountability 23. Epaphrodus, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greet you, as do Mark, um, Articus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. You know what? Fellowship of the body of Christ is, is not in a vacuum. It's not in a vacuum. Why? He knows all of these people. Philemon does. Epaphrodus was under the ministry of Paul, and Epaphrodus was probably the original pastor for the church in Colossae. Um, he did start churches in uh, Laodicea and Herpopolis, um, and, but he was a native of Colossae, Epaphrodus was. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12 tells us that. Uh, so he would be known by who? Philemon. All right. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says that Epaphras was devoted to prayer. He was a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and he was, had been in this church house in Colossians chapter 1, verse 7, uh, that would have been meeting in Philemon's house. Okay. Mark, that you see listed there in the text, is John Mark. Okay. I have motive here. There's motivation here. John Mark was Barnabas's cousin. Paul had already gone round and round on him with Acts chapter 13, verse 13. He said that he was weak for the ministry and sent him home, didn't want to be a part of him. And yet Barnabas interceded between Paul and Mark, and guess what? They became best buddies, and at the conclusion of his life, he wanted John Mark to come to strengthen him in his short time left here on the planet Earth. Articus was Jewish born, Colossians chapter 4, verse 11. He was a native of Thessalonia. Uh, Thessalonica, Acts chapter 20, verse 4 and 27, 2. And he had been through some rough stuff in the riot that was in Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 29, you will find out he was on that Pauline cruise that had the little <laughs> problem with the storm and snakes and all the rest of it. So this guy had been around for a while and he would have known Philemon. He was imprisoned in Colossians 4.10, and tradition, church tradition says he was martyred in Rome around the same time that the Apostle Paul was. Demas, 1 Timothy chapter 4, was faithful for a time, but for the love of this world he forsaken. And then you have Luke, who is the beloved physician, Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. Um, he is the writer of the third gospel. He was a Gentile. He was faithful. He was loyal to Paul, even as Paul was in the Mamertine prison and his second imprisonment to have his head removed, Luke was there with him. So basically these people that he just gives listed out here are all well known to Philemon. Okay, here's the deal. Verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. Okay, 
I'm imagining that there's a little conviction going on in Philemon reading this letter and Onesimus standing in front of him. Just a guess. Okay? And I'm imagining that Philemon is probably doing the same thing if it was you or me. Where in the world do I get the strength to do this? And he says it right there. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Who did the whole book? It doesn't end there. Okay? I know emphatically that Philemon forgave him. Had Philemon not forgiven him, this letter would not have shown up in Holy Scripture. Okay? And I do not believe that God would put a letter in here would give us a false impression. Okay? Paul was released. And he did go back to that area. Okay? And I'm thinking that under love, no problem in the grace of Jesus Christ. There's an interesting article that I read also. A guy named Ignatius from Smyrna uh, was preparing to be martyred in Rome. And he wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. Okay? And he says, quote in Ignatius' letter, I received your large congregation in the person of your bishop, Onesimus. This would have been about 50 years after this letter, so Onesimus wouldn't have been a, a, a young man anymore. But it is very conceivable that he would have been in his 70s, 80s maybe. Could it be the same? I don't know. I don't know. Let me give you a story in our century. I'll just read you the text. Speaking of Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, 7.55 a.m. on Sunday morning. In less than two hours, 2,403 American soldiers and sailors and civilians were killed. Another 1,700 or another 1,178 were wounded. Aircraft losses were totaled 188 planes, and much of the United States Pacific Fleet was destroyed or damaged. Okay. The raid was led by a brilliant 39-year-old Japanese naval pilot named Mitsu Fukaya, whose idol was Adolf Hitler. Although his plane was hit several times by ground fire, he survived the raid and the attack on Pearl Harbor and led the United States, which led to the United States entry into World War II and ultimately devastated the devastation of the Japanese homeland by the American conventional atomic bombs. After the war, Fukaya was haunted by memories of all the death that he had witnessed. And he attempted to find solace and he took up farming near Osaka. His thoughts turned more and more and more to the problem of peace. He decided to write a book on the subject. In this book, which he intended to call No More Pearl Harbors, he would urge the world to pursue peace. Micaiah struggled in vain. However, to find a principle upon which peace could... He struggled in vain to find what peace could be based on. The story was picked up by Donald... Rosenberger, an American and naval yeoman who had survived Pearl Harbor, uh, the Pearl Harbor attack, and he writes, 
Fukaya, who had heard two stories about prisoners of wars that filled him with excitement, and they seemed to illustrate the principle for which he was searching. The first report came from a friend, a lieutenant who had been captured by the Americans and incarcerated in a prisoner of war camp in America. Fukaya saw his name on a newspaper and a list of POWs who were returning to Japan. He, deter- he determined to visit him. When they met, they spoke of many things. Then Fukaya asked the question uppermost in his mind. How did they treat you in the POW camp? His friends said they were treated fairly well, although they suffered much mentally and spiritually. But then he told Fukaya a story which he said made a great impression upon him and on every prisoner in the camp. Something happened at the camp where I was interned, he said, which was made possible for us who were at the camp to forgo our resentment and hatred and to return with a forgiving spirit and feeling of lightheartedness instead. There was a young American girl named Margaret Peggy Koval, who they judged was about 20, who had come to the camp on a regular basis doing all she could for the prisoners. She brought things to them so that they might enjoy, magazines and newspapers. She looked after their sick, and she was constantly um, solicitous to help them in every way. She received, they received a great shock, however, when they asked her why she was so concerned to help them. She answered, because my parents were killed by the Japanese army. Such a statement might shock a person from any culture, but in the incomprehensiveness to the Japanese in their society, no offense could be greater than the murder of one's parents. Peggy tried to explain her motives. She said to her parents were missionaries in the Philippines, and while the Japanese invaded the islands, their parents had escaped to the mountains of northern Luzon for safety. In due time, however, they were discovered. The Japanese charged them with being spies and told them to be put to death. They earnestly denied that they were spies, but the Japanese would not be convinced, and they were executed. When report of the death reached her, Her first reaction was an intense anger and bitter hatred. She was furious with grief and indignation and thoughts of her parents' last hours of life being filled with great sorrow. She envisioned them trapped, wholly at the mercy of their captors, with no way out. She saw the merciless brutality of the soldiers, and she saw them facing the Japanese executioners falling lifeless to the ground on that far-off Philippine mountain. Then Peggy began to consider her parents' selfless love for the Japanese people. Gradually, she became convinced that she had been forget that they had forgiven the people of God and had called them to love and serve. And they occur- <clears throat> then it occurred to her and to her parents that they died without bitterness or rancor toward their executioners. Why should she? Why should her attitude be different? Should she be filled with hatred and vengefulness <clears throat> when they were filled with love? and forgiveness. Her answer could only be, definitely not. Therefore, they chose the path of love and forgiveness, and she decided to minister to the Japanese prisoner in a nearby POW camp as proof of her sincerity. Futura was touched by this story, but is especially impressed with the possibility that it was actually what he had been searching for, a principle sufficient to be a basis for peace. Could it be 
The answer in which he was seeking was forgiving love flowing from God to man and then from man to man. Could it be that the principle upon which the message of his projected book, No More Pearl Harbors, could be based? Shortly after this, the cure was summoned by General Douglas MacArthur to Tokyo. He'd gotten off the plane at Subian Station and he's handed a pamphlet entitled, I Was a Prisoner of Japan. Told about an American sergeant, Jacob D. Zazer, who had spent 40 months in a Japanese prison cell and who, after the war, had come back to Japan to love and serve the Japanese people, helping them to come to know Jesus Christ. Jutera read the uh, story with interest. Zazer had been a bombardier on one of the 16 Army B-25 planes under the leadership of General Jimmy Doolittle, which had been launched in 18th of April 1942 from the deck of the USS Hornet to bomb Tokyo. None of these planes were shot down, but all of them ran out of gasoline before they could land properly. The crew of five on the plane in which DeCesar had been bailing out over occupied China, the next morning they were captured and incarcerated for the duration of the war. DeCesar noted that all the prisoners were treated badly and <clears throat> said that at one point, he almost went insane with his violent hatred of the Japanese guards. His one day, a guard broke through, brought them a Bible. There uh, were all of the soli- they were all in solitary confinement, so they took turns reading it. When it was the sage's turn, he had it for three weeks. He read it eagerly and intensely, both Old and New Testaments, and finally he writes, the miracle of conversion took place June 8th, 1944. DeCesar determined that if he lived until the war was over and if he were released, he would return to the United States, devote a period of time to serious Bible study, and then return to Japan to share the message of Christ with the Japanese people. And that is exactly what he did. Great crowds came to hear his story, and many responded to the invitation to receive Christ. Ruchira was deeply impressed. Here it was again. A second example of love overcoming hatred. He sensed the power of forgiveness to actually change the hearts and lives of people. Excitingly, he sensed that it could be a principle strong enough to be the basis of his projected book. He's determined to learn all he could about DeCesar and his beliefs. At the train station on his way home, he attained a copy of the New Testament in Japanese, and a few months later, he began to read two or three chapters a day in Scripture. Then, September 1949, Petira read Luke 23. This is the first time he had read the story of the crucifixion. The Calvary scene pierced Petira's spirit and came alive in St. Luke's starkly beautiful prose. In the midst of horror of his death, Christ said, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they do. Tears sprang to Futura's eyes, and he had reached the end of his long, long wandering. Surely these words were the source of love that DeCesar and Peggy Koval had shown. As Jesus hung there on the cross, he prayed not only to his persecutors, persecutors but for all of humanity. That meant he prayed and died for Futura, a Japanese man living in the 20th century. By the time Futura finished reading Luke, he had received the Lord Jesus Christ, and he ended up writing his book. He entitled it, From Pearl Harbor to Golgotha.
That, brothers and sisters, is forgiveness. Father, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, lives of action of forgiveness. Father, may we have the character of forgiveness. And Father, may we have the motivation of forgiveness. I thank you for this little letter. I thank you for Onesimus. I thank you for Philemon. I thank you for my brother Paul. And Father, I eagerly await the day that I spend eternity with them. And for Chera and the young lady's parents and so many more have stepped up and said, Father, we didn't know what we were doing. And we thank you for your forgiveness. Father, may we, people called by your name, rest in that assurance and practice that assurance. Your glory and praise. Amen.